0: In Max Licato's book, he still moves the stones if he tells the story of human tragedy. Rebecca Thompson fell twice from the Fremont Canyon Bridge and she died both times. The first fall broke her heart, the second broke her neck. She was only 18 years of age when she and her 11-year-old sister were taken captive by some young men near a store in Casper, Wyoming. They drove the girls 40 miles southwest of the Fremont Canyon Bridge, a one-lane steel beam structure rising 112 feet above the North Platte River. They brutally beat and raped Rebecca, and she somehow convinced them not to do the same to her younger sister Amy. Both of them were thrown over the bridge into the narrow gorge. Amy died when she landed on a rock near the river, but Rebecca slammed into a ledge and was ricocheted into some deeper water. With a hip fractured in five places, she struggled to the shore. To protect her body from the cold, she wedged herself between two rocks and waited until the dawn. But the dawn never came for Rebecca. Oh, the sun came up and she was found. The physicians treated her and the courts imprisoned her attackers. And life continued, but for her, the dawn never came. The blackness of her night of horrors lingered. She was never able to climb out of that canyon. So in September 1992, 19 years after the incident, she returned to the bridge. Against her boyfriend's pleading, she drove 70 miles an hour to the North Platte River. And with her her two-year-old daughter and her boyfriend at her side, she sat at the edge of the Fremont Canyon Bridge and wept. And through tears, she began to retell the story. And The boyfriend didn't want the child to see the mother cry, so he carried the toddler back to the car. And that's when he heard the body hit the water. And that's when Rebecca Thompson died her second death. You see, the sun never dawned on Rebecca's dark night. And the question is raised, why? What eclipsed the light from her world? Was it fear, perhaps? On the day of her death, the two had been up for parole. These that had abused her. Was it anger? Was it anger at her rapist? Anger at the parole board for releasing them? was it anger at herself for the thousand falls and the thousand nightmares that followed or anger at god for a canyon that grew ever deeper and a night that grew ever black and a dawn that never came or was it guilt many think so despite a, her attractive smile and appealing personality friends say that she struggled with the ugly fact that she had survived and her little sister had not was it shame Everyone she knew and thousands she didn't had heard the humiliating details of her tragedy. And she had been violated. So 19 years later, she went back to the bridge. You see, canyons of shame run deep. Try as you might to outrun yesterday's tragedies. Their tentacles are longer than your hope. They draw you back to the bridge of sorrows to be shamed again and again. And if it was your fault, it would be different. If you were to blame, you could apologize If the tumble into the canyon was your mistake, you could respond. But you weren't a volunteer. You were a victim. So writes Max Licato. Sometimes our shame is private. We're pushed over the edge by an abusive spouse or molested by a perverted parent. Seduced by compromising superiors and many may not know. But you know, and that's enough. Sometimes it's public branded by a divorce you didn't want, contaminated by a disease you never expected, handicapped you didn't create, and whether it's actual in your eyes or just in your imagination, you have to deal with it. If God is so great and loving, why is our world filled with victims? In a world where God gives freedom and chooses and allows some to choose to victimize others, In the hearts of men lie a sinful nature, needing to be surrendered to this transforming power of his amazing grace. But you know, God himself understands what it's like to be victimized at the hands of his own creation. For you see, Jesus was betrayed, he was mocked, he was beaten, falsely accused, and finally crucified. The ultimate man was victimized by men. Every day he's victimized again as his creation abuses one another. And we need to realize that he is there. And some may argue, why doesn't he stop it? Every day he spares some victim. Each life that surrenders to his kingdom destroys the potential and power of evil in that life. But I'm not going to focus on the wise, but rather I want to zero in on how a person who has been victimized can process the pain in their life and move on with their lives. And I believe we can learn from Jesus himself how someone who has been victimized can become an overcomer. In Luke's gospel, we pick up the story of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And I always ask myself the question, why did the soldiers guarding Jesus become so abusive? Was it because they were just fed up of you know, being attacked by the people they were oppressing? Was it inspired by some demonic forces who are venting their hatred on the Lord Jesus Christ? And see, we read here in Luke chapter 22 and verse 63, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him, and they blindfolded him, and they demanded, prophesy who hit you, and they said many other insulting things to him. So what drives people to such cruelty? For the soldiers, it was probably a hardened lifestyle. For the religious and political leaders, it was a threatened lifestyle. They were actually losing control. You see, people who victimize others are really trying to control others. They're trying to rise above their own sense of inadequacy and worthlessness. And victimizers abuse others thinking that the victim's unwillingness or inability to stop them makes the victim less valuable. Some people feel empowered by abusing someone they think is weaker. And cruelty often keeps growing in the human heart. We can see in the story these executioners were hardened men. They were insensitive to the people they were in charge of. And this can also happen in our time with people that are maybe working in places like the military or the police department who have to address difficult situations and challenging people. Here before the religious leaders, Jesus was falsely accused and attacked. Matthew records that Pilate recognized that the leaders were motivated to get rid of Jesus because they were envious of his support. In Matthew 27, 18, it says, For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. What was tragic was their unwillingness to dialogue with Jesus. They had made their minds up already. This element of life is so convicting. We believe what we want to believe. These leaders maintained their unbelief in the face of great evidence to the contrary. So, why did they work so hard at diligently trying to destroy Jesus? Well, we've already said it. They felt like they were losing control. Jesus was disturbing the system that these leaders were benefiting under. He was challenging their lifestyle and their hypocrisy. It wasn't enough just to write Jesus off, they wanted him out of their lives, they wanted him dead. One of the reasons why relationships are often jeopardized is that we try to control others and thereby we destroy a sense of intimacy. And when I'm speaking of intimacy, I'm speaking about the ability to share openly our innermost thoughts and feelings. It's evident to me that these religious leaders traded the opportunity of intimacy with God so that they could stay in control over a religious system. And I think how often many make the same mistake. It can happen in our homes where people are trying to control the behavior of others and thereby destroying this relationship, this sense of intimacy. And there's a wall of rejection and alienation begins to develop. Finally, Jesus was brought before the people, the people who now put pressure on Pilate to crucify him. And we read of that mob mentality. We live in a world so often where injustice is not readily seen or where justice is not served. And how do we respond to those situations? How did Jesus respond to the fact that he was innocent and yet he was crucified? So what is usually the general response of those who have been victimized? Anger, resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness. But how did Jesus handle being victimized? How did he handle being a victim? What was meant to destroy was actually the vehicle that God was using to reveal his love and forgiveness. The Bible says that God commended his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ was crucified for us. Jesus, we read, chose to forgive. And forgiveness is what transforms our lives and delivers us from sin's hold on our lives both receiving God's forgiveness and expressing forgiveness to others. Listen to the words of Jesus, now crucified on the cross. One of the last words of Jesus was simply, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. In a Time Magazine article written many years ago, the author says forgiveness does not look much like a tool for survival in a bad world. But that's exactly what it is. Those who do not forgive are those who are least capable of changing the circumstances of their lives. In other words, we can become trapped in our personal pain. We can begin to live in the past with all of the hurt, resentment, heartache, and bitterness that flows from that. But what happens when we know that we should forgive, or maybe even we're trying to forgive, and yet it's so hard to forget, it's so hard to get past the pain. And I love what Corey Tenboom, a Nazi death camp survivor wrote. She said, there was a time in my life when I was struggling to forget a wrong that had been done to me. She said, yes, I had forgiven that person, but she said, my mind kept rehashing the incident and I just could not sleep. Finally, she started crying out to God for help in putting this problem of unforgiveness to rest. And she said the help came in the form of the counsel of a godly pastor she said to whom i confess my failures after two weeks of sleeplessness and then he said to me up in that church tower as he nodded out the window is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope and you know what after the sexton lets go of the rope the bell keeps swinging First a ding and then a dong. And slower and slower until there's the final dong and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep flooding our minds from time to time. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be, she said. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in a conversation. But the force, which was my willingness in the manner, had gone out of them. They came less and less often, and at last they stopped altogether. And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness. We can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts." But I want to just close with looking at the results or the freedom and the power of what happens when a person who is a victim chooses to be a forgiver. And I always define forgiveness as giving a person the gift they do not deserve because that's exactly what God gave to us. And so we read in Luke chapter 23 and verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. In other words, the way Jesus died in his expression of forgiveness impacted that man's heart. And then we read in the next verse, and when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. You know, I love this because what happened is the sneers and jeers are now turned to reflection. One writer pointed out that the effectiveness of Peter's sermon 50 days later was probably a result of the attitude and actions of Jesus on the cross. People left in solemn thought. Now you and I know we can't be responsible for other people's actions. But we also realize that we can be responsible for our own. We may not always be able to protect ourselves from others, but we can choose how we're gonna respond to them. We can let their actions control us or we can choose to forgive, freeing ourselves from the real poison behind every evil. The evil that we do to ourselves when we remain in unforgiveness, it becomes a bondage in our life actually destroying our very lives. And so I want to close in a word of prayer and maybe some of you today as we're reflecting on the death of Jesus, we're reflecting on the words of Christ dying from the cross, words of forgiveness, that you and I receive those words into our own hearts, that we actually believe them and some of us we probably need to forgive ourselves. But can I also say that we need to utilize the power of this gift, experience it, and then learn to forgive other people. And I believe that many of the past resentments, hurts and pains will diminish from our lives and a new joy and a new freedom will flow from our lives. And so let us pray that that will happen even this weekend, let's pray. So Father, we thank you tonight that you are a forgiving father. We thank you, Lord, that when we least deserved it and we had no thought of you and we were living selfish, rebellious lives, you revealed yourself to us and made your forgiveness known, which has brought about an amazing transformation in our lives. And yet so many of us who have experienced hurt and pain and disappointment, and Lord, we've, we've questioned some of the things that have occurred in our lives, I pray tonight that we would be able to open our hearts to you and receive the grace and the enablement to forgive those who have wounded us and hurt us and recognize that we can be free from the prison of unforgiveness and that we could walk in a newfound joy and a new delight and a new hope. And we thank you for these things. We receive your grace tonight. We receive this grace to receive forgiveness, and the grace to extend it. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.